You are listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go! Afternoon, morning, whenever it is that you happen to be listening, welcome to Ace Comicals episode 112. I've been wanting to do like, you know, like the, I keep every time we do, I've, I've done it this way this time, because every time we do an episode, I want to do like the good morning intro or the good evening intro or something like that. But I can't <laughs> because like people listen at all different times. There's probably someone listening to this at like fucking 3am somewhere. So like, how oh, do you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact i hope there is like yeah um but yeah welcome to episode uh, uh 112 of ace comicals and um yeah we've got a bunch of stuff to discuss today things to things that we've caught up on um some weird and wild things that i found that i want to shout to you all about because they're absolutely fantastic um meanwhile like what has everyone been up to since we spent three hours talking about Batman? <laughs> if anything, because um, I know I've not done an awful lot apart from read more Batman in prep for the next one. Um, so I've been like starting to read Night's End and associated material in prep for the next Nightfall chapter. And this is where we get Batman back. And it's the triumphant return of the true Batman. Bruce no is back. No time off for you, Greg. No time no, off. <laughs> no, no time to waste. My brain's already rotten. I might as well just finish it off, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing nothing since that. I feel like I've been in withdrawal symptoms since finishing <laughs> the last Batman episode. Um, Got any more of them? They're nineties Batman comics. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> need to get this filth out of my body. <laughs> like a midwestern meth head. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> So yeah, we've just been like, I've just been reading like the next lot of Batman stuff, just getting ready for it, like getting my head into that space. Um, and I've been enjoying it actually, because this is actually the good bit. So <laughs> this is the bit where it gets good again, because we've had the... Uh... You've said that before. <laughs> I've had these yeah. lies before. <laughs> Look, man, right. If you can find me a comic that I don't enjoy in some way, like... No, yeah, fair. It's a pretty tall order, isn't it, if you think about it? It'd have to be something truly awful or truly offensive for me to not, like, enjoy it in some way, shape or form, I think. Um, but yeah, um, back to, back to my jam, which is Night's End. Um, have you guys, like, other than stuff that's on the list, have you guys read anything recently? Or should we just dive straight into what we've got today? I've not read any other comics. Um, I've been reading uh, House of Leaves again because it's been about ten years since I last read that book. Um, and that's that's a, a fun and frustrating read. Partly because the the book is so big, like it's hard to hold up while I'm reading in bed. Like it's just really uncomfortable. So I've been like stacking pillows on my lap so I can put the book on the uh, on the pillows. I don't know if you guys have any sort of setup like that. I think I may have complained about it before. Like I wish I had a lectern or something that I could like <laughs> open the book out onto. Yeah, give sermons. Well, that's me. That is, I need that. I need uh, the Church of Comics. I need a lectern where I can open mm. an omnibus and give sermons from the omnibus. Um, but no, I I tend to lie on the floor and open the book in front of me, or I sit there with my tablet 
holding my tablet above my face. Um, Lie on the floor, like face, yeah. like on your belly. Yeah, yeah, like oh a my, child do you hate reading magazines. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I I do this other thing as well, where like basically my tablet has like a um, the 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 cover I've got for my tablet has like a built-in stand. Mm. So I just stand my tablet up and just do hands-free staring at the tablet. Yeah, that's why I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my desk. Um, mm. So, like, haven't you been watching people simp for a giant vampire lady? <laughs> I actually, ha- I, I didn't play Village myself, but I watched a friend play all the way through, and I wouldn't say I was one of the simpers. I don't really get the, I don't get the big lady vampire mommy thing, but the game was really good to watch through. I think um, Girlfriend Reviews on YouTube did a really good breakdown of, like, why it's a really good backseat game. Uh, and yeah. I agree with a lot of what she said in that video. So, uh, yeah, check out Resident Evil if you like it. Like, I'm sure you, if you're a Resident Evil person, you'll already know whether that's your jam or not. So, yeah. I, I've been way out of the world of video games for so long. Like, I've been playing Soulstorm, but that's it. Mm. And I'm happy just plodding along through Soulstorm because that's a gorgeous game with lots of cool things in it. And I get to, you know, be part of a revolution, which is nice. <laughs> um... So other than that, uh, I guess we're diving straight into Ha Ha, because I yeah. finally caught up with me clown comics. Let's get into so, it. Like you, I've been waiting yeah. for you to read this. Yeah. So I think last time we left it where like you guys had read it and I hadn't. And there was this whole thing where you put it on the cast list thinking, oh, yeah, Greg's definitely going to have read this. <laughs> but Greg was waiting for, waiting for physical copies of it. Um, right. And he was waiting for his comic shop to reopen, which has now changed, by the way. Because Forbidden Planet aren't putting comics, like, uh, from what I understand, from what I've been made aware, they don't put comics on the shelves anymore, like single Mm. issues. So unless you order it, you don't get it. Yeah, that's been the case in in London for Orbital for a while now. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they they stopped having them stocked in shelves and it's just orders only. It's a pretty sad development for me because I used to like going in on Wednesdays and seeing everything on the stands. That was like, you know... Mm. The, the thing one of the many things that i enjoy about the hobby right um but like i used to um i used to like going in and seeing everything on the shelves and on the stands and things but then that changed so they've stopped doing that so um i've got a couple of books on with forbidden planet still but what i've started doing because um my buddy matt who worked at forbidden planet was manager there he has uh, he's left his job at Forbidden Planet because he's got his own business now called Hobby Ultra. And what he's doing is he's selling lots of high-end Japanese figures, like, like Nendo Droid type things. You know the things? Mm-hmm. Is it figures yeah, yeah. and Nendo Droids? Yeah, I don't know too much about figures. I'm not much of a figures guy. But he's selling. A, he sells a lot of that stuff, Gundam model kits and things like that. But he's also started doing comics as well. So, like, he's like, basically his his goal is he does this like virtual online comic shop thing um where he posts out to pretty much all of the uk obviously he will be looking to do international but not just yet um you can check out the website it's pretty cool um if you just go to hobby ultra um on like uh, any social media channel you'll find him um but like he started doing comics and i've got my standing order with him now (laughs) majority Hmm. so i just get them in the post pre-bagged and boarded um and if he gets the physical location which eventually i think he wants to get 
then um, I'll be keeping my standing order with him, I think, because he's a real swell guy and uh, he knows his comic stuff and um, he was in charge of the comics at Forbidden Planet until now, at my Forbidden Planet anyway. So um, I, I trust him in his hands with my standing order. So yeah, <laughs> there we go. That's interesting though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the bricks and mortar shop and everything, but the way Forbidden Planet's going, I'm less inclined to support Forbidden Planet than I am to support someone's indie business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and if I if I had a bricks and mortar place like Orbital in Leicester, you know, or a mum and pop bricks and mortar business, then I would probably be going there anyway and not to Forbidden Planet. You know, as much as I'm thankful for the fact that we have a comics shop in Leicester, because there's a lot of places that don't, um, I feel that Forbidden Planet could do better and should do better. And I think Forbidden Planet, like, even down to the fact that they've started doing this thing where they they really are pushing the non-printed merchandise, like super pushing the non-printed stuff, like, you know, like the pop vinyls and things like that. Hmm. And that's now their bread and butter. And I am... Yeah. Yeah. So I I feel like it's becoming less of a comic shop and more of like just a general like pop culture merchandise shop. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think any of this is a controversial take. <laughs> like Food and Planet yeah. going downhill and you wanting to support like an independent... Yeah. Especially, yeah. especially being a friend and like wanting to support a friend's yeah. business. Like, yeah. I, I wouldn't contest that. Well, anyway... Um, roundabouts, I picked up my comics from Pin Planet that I've been waiting for for heck knows how long when the shop reopened and I got my back orders of haha. So I'm up to date issues one to four now. Mm. Um, I think there's only going to be six in total, right? Which is a shame yeah. because mm. these are really cool. Um, I mean, how and, many how many different types of clown are there? Like, I think it's fine to stop it because uh, to, to clarify that point, each but, new issue is about a different type of clown. Like, uh, yeah, but, the third but, one is about a mind. The first one is about uh, like just a regular juggling clown yeah, or whatever. We've got yeah, but like everyone's a clown. Like it's it's less about the type of clown itself and more about like a deconstruction of the human condition via clowns. Like, it's, it's like, um, it's I mean, like I was the clown. Being, I, I was, be, I was yeah. just being glib. <laughs> but yeah, also yeah, yeah. you and I are very different in that I like when things end. Like, I'm glad this is only a six issue run and we get like the best of it in six and it's over and done with. I'm looking forward yeah. to like it being one book that I get to have on my shelf at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Same. But I, I also like, I like this style of story and this is... Part of the reason I like Ice Cream Man, because so I loved binging this after picking up my comics. Like it's a real treat of an anthology and it really Mm. does speak to me like Ice Cream Man does. It's like Ice Cream Man, but for me, it's less existential and more introspective. Yeah. Um, Yeah, It's like what makes a clown and what makes, but it's like, how can I put this into words? So clowns are... The clowns in in these books are they just happen to be clowns, but it, it's like they've been. It's like the fact that they're wearing clown makeup is merely a spotlight to draw your attention to that character 
out of everybody else in the book. That's what sets them apart. But what they struggle through and what they suffer with is just, it's basically the, the full deconstruction of traumas and, and, um, the surrealness that comes along with that. And, and that's just the, the, the traumas of everyday people. And it get it's introspective in, you know, on, on different scenarios and different conditions and things like that. But it's not exclusive or specific to clowns is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Even though the protagonist in each book or, or the, you know, the main sort of focus of each book is a clown and the main focus is clowns. And it tends to be what makes a clown. Um, I could... It's the true definition of Tears of a Clown, isn't it? The saying, Tears of a Clown, or the, the song, mm. like, like the whole Tears of a Clown thing. Yeah. It's like yeah, the I true think everything, definition of that. Mm. Yeah. Everything you just said was very eloquent. Like, that's that's what I was struggling to put into words when I was talking about issue one and two. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I like that each one focuses on a different type of person. And, it's, and the fact that they that their profession is clowning of any of what you know whatever various sort isn't necessarily the thing that drives their characters as you said it's they have some underpinning other thing other trauma that they're dealing with and they so happen to be a clown while going through it but it's it's like there's a lot of discussion of like mental illness and things like that in there as well and mm-hmm. it's almost like the clown pain is kind of like a physical expression of mental illness in these books in some places. Um, and I love how surreal parts of these books are and like how the themes, how, how they go along and how they're dreamlike and, you know, they're unsettling like nightmares, but the difference is they're tethered to reality. It's not as heavy handed or as tongue in cheek as Ice Cream Man can be. Hmm. Um, it's like a bit more delicate in its approach and not so reliant on horror and it's altogether a different kind of unsettling it's tragic and it's melancholy and it's like the like I was saying the true definition of Tears of a Clown like my favourite one so far actually um, of the four like I loved issue one when you guys were talking about issue one and now I've read it and I love I love issue one I love the, the scene in the bank where he gets shot and then like his his whole thing is he's just like this this unshakable optimist and even mm. been shot even being shot in the head can't stop him but is that just is that brain damage or is just that the fact that he's just an unshakable optimist we'll never know <laughs> um but yeah um because he doesn't just get shot in the head he gets beat round the head with a crowbar tire iron or whatever mm. and like I'm pretty sure like it becomes a a, a combination of his unshakable optimism and obvious head trauma (laughs) that somehow the doctors missed and just sent him home with a bullet hole in his head, you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like uh, my, that one, that one was really cool, but my favorites are actually two and three, three and four, even sorry. Um, Three, because it's mostly silent and it's this mime and it feels, you know, almost Warner Brothers-y in tone and execution. Like, it could have been an Animaniacs feature. Like, in the way that it goes. Um, I mean, like, obviously it's a little bit more adult, but, like, just the way that it is... The way it's animated, the way it goes, you can just imagine it's set to music and <laughs> in, like, a Warner brothers style, like, uh, animated feature way, like an Animaniacs uh, feature, like an Animaniacs episode or whatever. 
um, something that would come in between good idea, bad idea and chicken boo, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, all of them make reference to J.C. Wilbur, which is that, that old yeah. famous cartoon with the dancing frog, right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And, you know, and then uh, issue four has like the it, um, <laughs> has all the it references. Issue four is one big it reference, actually. Hmm. Um, red balloons, clowns with sharp teeth. Yeah, but like issue four has like this fantastic, strange, gorgeous, floaty, dreamlike texture, and it's beautifully surreal. And um, I'm going to come on to this later on because I'm going to talk about dream comics and and com- the the sort of like the interconnection between comics and dreams, which we have touched on in a previous episode. But I'm going to get onto this later on in this episode when I talk about something else on today's list. Um, but this kind of like hits that sweet spot for me where comics meet dreams and does what comics do so well. Uh, that film and, and any other, I mean, animation, I guess, is the, other, is the only other one that can come close to it. And this is something that, again, this is coming from something else I've read. But like what comics do really well is their ability to actually translate dreams into a narrative and just show them um because you can't really do that with the within the physical constraints of film because with film i mean yes you've got all the special effects magic in the world but it's not as it's you can tell you can it it, there's no um for some reason it's, it's not as immersive like when it's a film you know it's a film but when you're reading a comic and that is what you're looking at and it's that world and the whole world looks like that and it's all uniform and unified. Whereas in film, it's harder to achieve that. I think it's a case though of, um, effectiveness in a, in a lot of case, because I think that there's a different, uh, sort of target outcome for doing like a live action filmed dream sequence, like a good one not like the sort of hackneyed ones we've seen in loads of movies, but like good ones are trying to achieve a particular thing. Um, Whereas like I feel animation is trying to achieve a a different thing. And and that thing is closer to what comics can do, where I think it's a mix of things like immersion, but also... uh, with a comic and animation, there is less of a barrier for um, suspending your disbelief because mm. uh, frame to frame or panel to panel, as a standard, things can change wildly. On like one panel could have a dog, and the next panel or the next frame, the dog is now a dragon flying through a nebula or something like that, mm. and there's less barrier for that for you to accept that because it's all in uh to a degree a similar art style but also i think that as an audience and especially if you're particularly savvy in in particular mediums and their output you um are more like ready to go on the ride whereas i think that movies have a harder thing where either the dream is going to be uh, a spectacle thing uh, where it, or it's going to be highly focused on the internals of a character but, but could be quite down to earth 
So that's when you have like your Sopranos uh, dream sequences, and mm-hmm. like, and then compared and contrast with like an, an Inception, which is doing something different, differently. And um, whereas, like, I think what you're getting at with like with like books and animation, um, because that disbelief barrier is so thin that it, it's easier for you as a reader or as a, a viewer of the animation to be pulled into the pages, pulled into the TV or whatever. Yeah, and it's like be a fully less... immersed. Hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, there's like, uh, agreeing with your point, there's less resistance to abstraction, I think, on the page. Like the way you explained it, you could go uh, from an object in one panel transforming into an object in another and your mind gets to fill in the gaps. Whereas I think... Like there's certain expectations of cinema or TV to to fill in that gap for you to show you to you know depending on the format of the thing you're watching I guess but yeah, yeah I, I guess I wouldn't have even brought up the comparison between film and comics to begin with like I don't think it I I, I, I wouldn't have thought that was necessary because like yeah we we that, can love both formats yeah we can love both we can definitely love both but that's this is just all stuff coming I mean like I'm not as smart as I sound this is all stuff coming from something I read that Craig wrote at the beginning of a book I'm going to talk about later but like it's it's just the fact that like the barrier I think the barrier to abstraction what I'm trying to get at is the barrier to to achieving that level of abstraction is lower in comics than it is in other mediums um and I think that is why it translates so well and why you can do these kind of like really trippy sequences and have them actually like hit mm. uh, rather than with, with films where you have to spend, you have to, you have to either do it really, you have to do it really with films. You have to, you have to work really hard at it and you have to do it really, really well. And you know, like the budget, you, you have to, you have to spend an awful lot of money on it to get it to up to a level where it is, on par with what a comic can achieve if is what I'm trying to get at I suppose with as far as like abs- the barrier to abstraction is lower with comics and animation than it is with live action film um, because of the nature of live action film with it being live action um, yeah, fair enough but, uh, I, yeah. I do want to say like about the the fourth issue like I yeah. really like sort of on this same point but like I like how it's playing with visuals that you you kind of have come to expect from children's books, like children's storybook tones. It's all like very light and watercolored and like soft and only very slightly sinister, you know, in the way that like fairy tales and comic, uh, like children's uh, books when, you know, for the reading age of like five to 10 kind of thing, picture books have like these surreal visuals that kind of edge on frightening, uh, which is kind of a, (laughs) that's a very clown vibe to begin with anyway. And like, I think number four sells that really, really well. And as as melancholy as it is, it's the most optimistic one. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Mm. And I think that's probably the other reason I liked it today. Well, I think um, all of them, like <laughs> when viewed relative to Ice Cream, and I yeah. think all of them are kind of like finding finding the optimism even in in the darkness. Where you it, know, yeah. Whereas Ice Cream Man isn't really doing that. Like I think that's what I like about Haha. It's it's about perseverance in the face of all the the difficulties yeah. that we go through. Is that not what being a clown is, though? There to entertain the masses, right? <laughs> like, yeah. If if a clown can't, you know, keep calm, carry on, then who can? Exactly. <laughs> I think I think we've just pretty much just found the spine of this thing. But, um, so like, I just want to say that my two favourites, which is issue three and issue four. Issue three was uh, the mime one, which is W. Maxwell Prince and Roger Langridge. 
Um, and issue four is W. Maxwell Prince with Patrick Horvath and uh, good old Neon doing letters. Um, do you guys have a favourite out of the four? Yeah, I think think my favourite is the third one. I really like uh, the art style, the look, and the the way the story is delivered in in the third one, the one with the mime. Um, It's one of those ones where it's fully dedicated to its form and does really cool things with that. Like how um, dialogue is never really uttered. Instead, it's um, like iconography and symbols that we know to mean stuff. So, like uh, early on, when the uh, mimes uh, landlord is chastising them for the rent, it's just shown in like dollar signs r- rather mm. than being like articulated with words. And like there's a there's a cool moment not long after that where he he's uh, watching the TV and, and mutes it. And we still see the speech bubble of the person on TV, but it's like blanked out. It's like really like nice little touches like that. And yeah, I really like how uh, being a mime um, is all about, say, like the performance to to the audience. And then that's mm. carried over even when he's by himself. And like you were saying, Greg, with that whole like Warner Brothers thing, it does have that feeling, like especially when he's in the dump where like there's no one with him. But he's still like presenting stuff to us who are yeah. viewing it, like yeah. the, the rat and like the con, the used condom and stuff. And I, yeah. I like how there is a because like it is a hard life, obviously, as we see at the beginning. The act isn't working, and then um, the the bond he finds with the bender-looking robot um, is really cool and expressed so efficiently and so quickly from panel to panel um like one page we we get this thing where we're just like yeah these are kindred spirits and uh it's it's like really cool how they found each other and it never feels like even though it could feel like in these stories it never feels like um oh he's using um the robot for um like to improve his act type thing, mm. uh, which it could easily be. And I, I thought, yeah, it could be that thing, but instead they are, they, they are bonded. They are like, they are homies. And like, it, I know that there's a really like nice thing there. And obviously how, how the story progresses it, um, it, it, I think it, it deals with like loads of different things at the same time, like the interaction with the, the little girl and stuff. And like, it's, um, like it, it has like, like in a way like a similar sort of optimism tragedy as like the first issue, but the way it's presented is um, I know there's more of like an uh, a what's the word a more like um, not simple but uh, um, a more sort of focused uh, camaraderie and um, mm. like how how it progresses and how it ends. Um, and how it looks, obviously, um, like really like stuck out to me. And I, I like all four of these issues um, quite a bit. I, I think that this sort of experiment, you could say, Maxwell is doing is, um, I think, the haha structure is um, freeing in some ways to 
mess around with the format and to experiment with different styles. And um, this is this is one where I think that they really uh, him uh, the, them the, the collaborators they really do a good job of um, like like leaning in to the fact that this doesn't have to be sort of standardized and can be its own thing. And it's only uh, like later on where we we get like uh, the uh, the speech bubble thing sort of progressed, and it and it pays off in, in quite a uh, cool way. Yeah, definitely. And like, I I think I agree. Like, uh, obviously agreeing with the, all of the points you guys have made, but I, I also think number three is my favorite because it's the one that takes the. F- form of the mime of this issue and has a like a point built around it so like it's specifically this one is about a mime and like a mime's existence is or a mime's performance is centered around you know invisible walls invisible barriers and the effects and constraints of forces that don't actually exist and are only manifest because they perform them and because they believe in them and like i like that it's it's a story about him being constrained by these outside forces about like there's a very leftist reading here i think about you know laborers being viewed as machines he finds this automaton who like you said they they're homies they um they they find joy in this act together but there's no value to that because then you know the robot is claimed back by its owner um and like uh, the mime goes to seek his joy that way and it ends really tragically like he believes in his own uh he believes in his own performance so much to his own like detriment to his own end. And like, it's a really sad, tragic story. And I, I don't know, it just really, really worked for me, especially like how it has a way of showing how the cycle repeats with this other character that he meets in the story. And I don't know, I just, I thought that was all really effective. And that's, there's, I think there's a lot to read into this one. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. Um, so that is, uh, ha ha. And that is um, W. Maxwell Prince with various collaborators. Um, so I think issue one was um, Prince, Vanessa Del Rey, uh, Chris O'Halloran and good old Neon. Um, issue two, because he's the only ones we haven't given the credits for yet was uh, Maxwell Prince with Zoe Thorogood, uh, Chris O'Halloran, and Good Old Neon. And then uh, issue three and four, I've already given the credits for. But yeah, that was Ha Ha. And um, yeah, I can't wait for the next two, five and six. We get a little bit of a preview of what to expect um, from issue five at the back of issue four. Um, And there's an old lady leaving um, a grocery store wearing clown paint. Um, so I am, uh, I am looking very much forward to that to see where that's going, but yeah, that's ha ha. So I'm going to move on now to the next book today that I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is, uh, La Mano del Destino. Now, what this is, is a, it's released as a single graphic novel, but it was actually, um, originally six separate issues um and it was like a a, as far as i can i can gather it was an indie self-published title that was then picked up by top cow which is the image comics imprint and now it's a collected graphic novel 
Um, it is entirely the work of one Jay Gonzo, who is the artist, writer, etc. Um, if I read you the blurb from the Image website, La Mano del Destino tells the tale of a once champion luchador who, after being betrayed by his friends and amassed in the ring, agrees to a Faustian bargain with a mysterious promoter. He gains a new power and the identity of La Mano del Destino in order to exact revenge upon, upon his betrayers. Set in a swanky 1960s Mexico where Lucha Libre is intrinsically woven into all aspects of society, this tile winds its way through the machinations and motivations of all types who inhabit this unique setting. Can La Mano del Destino get his revenge while remaining the champion he knows himself to be? Um, so my connection to this thing comes from the Lucha thing, obviously, because of my interest in wrestling and things like that. So uh, also the fact that the way that this book is written and the way that this book is presented is like a super, uh, silver age superhero book. So this is silver age Kirby soul in a mascara de luchador. Um, I have no better way or more succinct way of describing the book. Um, it's a wonderful celebration of Lucha Libre and an optimistic tale about what it means to be a true champion. Um, so, like, the whole thing is this guy, La Mano del Destino, is setting an example to the people. It's strength of character, conviction, belief and resolve. Like, not just physical strength and prowess represented by beating your opponent, but, like, strength of character and everything else that it takes to um to to be honorable and and to to achieve these things and to to be a true champion for the people and to represent the people and not to be commodified not to let yourself be sold and 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 to be an instrument of the 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 powers that be basically um it paints a the book itself like it paints a wonderfully colorful alternative mexico where lucha is the center of culture it's like influences felt across all aspects of society even in religion there's a great wedding scene um in this book where like even the priest is wearing a mask um and there's like a revolutionary swell like throughout the whole narrative of the book where our protagonist uh, is thrown off the yoke of oppression and the bindings of an accepted social class structure to rise up and become the champion on his own terms um, and to gain the trust of others and to break the influence of the corrupt and thoughtless leaders and light the way as a true champion of the people. So yeah, it's like this su silver age superhero dynamism, but these very very uh quintessentially mexican themes and characters and um it's like in that it is actually also a celebration of mexican culture with luchadors presented as superheroes um and it has all of this kirby like dynamic silver age like you know like with the foreshortening he uses in panels and things like that and and just like this explosive bright colors and action and dynamic poses and you know, everything bright, fun and outlandish about Silver Age superhero comics that would have gotten you interested in Marvel in the first place. Um, and it's just this beautiful celebration of Mexican culture and heritage. Like the book embodies a strong element of struggle for identity, which would, I mean, specific to Mexican-American people and um, Latinx people, but also it like 
and Latinx culture, but it also kind of like touches on themes uh, surrounding commodification of Mexican and Latinx culture, um, especially in the US. And in the way like um, the way that he, the luchadors are, they become tools of this kind of like this league um, to make money for the people at the top, basically. And it's like, it, it's almost like it's exploring commodification of that and, and the commodification of Mexican culture in that way. Um, it's an awesome piece of work and it has roots that do extend far below its bright and brassy exterior. And like, I really love this book. Like, I mean, luchadors are superheroes of Mexican culture, if you think about it in a way. And um, even in how they're presented is very superior, like with the mask and the mask being the identity and everything else. Um, and you only have to look at actual luchadors like uh, El Santo. Um like the book really does capture the spirit and really does like um, El Santo was like, so he was this, this very famous Mexican luchador who became such a popular character that he would, um, he had comic books about him and he starred in movies as El Santo uh, and he became like a folk hero for the people and they built a statue of him. Um, and like La Mano del Destino is, is, is a very similar type of character in this comic book. And he's a symbol of justice and staying true to yourself and your values and your convictions. And the book kind of like really does capture that very, very nicely. Um, and really does kind of like sell that very well. Um, and also the way the book captures the signature movements of Lucha Libre too. Like, yeah, in I was the way, ask yeah. this, like how does it, um, because like like lucha libre stuff in, in like um, my experiences will be very kinetic, very like highly kinetic. Lots of like like it's like an acrobatic type of wrestling. So I was wondering how that translated to the page. Yeah, the high flying, the acrobatics, it's all there. They managed to the, like Jay Gonzo managed to get that into the panels very very well, um, and using that Silver Age panel structure and that Silver Age kind of like. Um, cadence that silver age comics had he manages to do that very well and he manages to like get those those uh those movements in very well in the poses and everything else and it just it just works and flows so beautifully and i think that that is like to get pe to get people twisting turning leaping and and to to be able to capture that in the way that it, it, he captured it i think is a tr is a real feat like because i've seen um uh, you know, like I, I've seen like lucha matches and things like that. I've watched like videos and things, and I've seen lucha. I've seen luchadors wrestle in WWE, um, and I've seen the way they move and what they do. And like, it's just to be able to capture that and get that down in in a comic book and everything else. I think is pretty cool, and it, it's a pretty cool piece of uh, piece of comic when when you've got it and you're looking at it and you're reading through it it's like something that's pretty pretty awesome so yeah they do they do do it very well like the the, the high flying intricate action and kinetics and the acrobatics it's all there um so yeah it's uh la mano del destino one to six and it present presents them with like this really great forward and tons of interesting extra written material about how the world was conceived and built and, you know, style choices, importance of masks, everything else. And it just, 
it just really ties it all together nicely and it's nice it's always nice to have like it's kind of like when you get the um i guess for, for i can equate it to having the making of features the like special features on a blu-ray it's always nice to have that like at the back of the graphic novel when you get all the pinups and everything else and these like you know extra bits of like design art and whatever and like concept pictures and early designs yeah Yeah. getting to watch it all come together is really cool and like the amount of research and the amount of like um thought that goes into creating the world and the locales that they use within the comic and everything else it's just insane like yeah, and, and this is, like, just a really, really great culmination of everything that um, everything that represents Silver Age comic books and everything else, but also in that it is a celebration of Lucha Libre and sort of, like, Latinx Mexican culture. So it's, it's perfect uh, for that. And, um, yeah, I love it, and you guys should check it out, definitely. Yeah, it sounds it's an- interesting. Awesome, awesome read. Um, it's it's out uh, digitally, and you can purchase it in print as well. So, I think you can get it anywhere where good books are sold, and um, you could get it from your LCS if you ask for it. They'll be able to order it in for you if they don't already have it on the shelf, and uh, you can purchase it on Comicsology and other digital avenues. So yeah, it's all there. Check it out. So that is uh, La Mano del Destino, which is entirely the work of uh, Jay Gonzo, Jason Gonzalez, uh, with a foreword by Evan Dorkin. And that is Image Comics and Top Cow. So yeah, go with it. Um, moving, moving down the list, it is uh, over to you guys. Ray, are you introducing this one? Yeah, I can do. Um, I was going to talk about The Many Deaths of Layla Starr, which I'm disappointed that you didn't pick up, Greg. You picked up I, I thought I've you'd be bought, on this one. I've bought The Many Deaths of Layla Starr. I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> it's, it's, in my, it's in my, like, sort of, like, digital stack. So I've got it ready to go. Um, I was actually, like, downloading it, like, right before... Because um, I wanted to read it before this episode... But I didn't get the chance to get on it before half seven, so there we go. I don't know why I'm giving you a hard time. It's fine. Like I, I barely read all the comics you recommend to me, but it is really good. I think you'll like it. Do you um, know how many comics a week I read, Ray? I do. I do know exactly how many comics a week you read. Um, um, okay, so I, I talked about uh, The Many Deaths of Layla Star issue one, or me and Leon talked about it um, a few episodes ago. Uh, this is a book by, or written by Ramvi, illustrated by Philippe Andrade, um, Color Assist by Inez Amaro and lettered by Andwald Design. It's a, a Boom Studios book. And um, I'll give a, a quick like recap of what number one was. It was it's basically a story about uh, the god of death who's being made redundant due to corporate restructuring of the eternal realm. <laughs> and uh, it's really, I thought it was a really fascinating introduction, um, like a really good number one, uh, tinged with uh, Hindu mythology, had a really great energetic art style. Um, in particular, we were praising the color palette, which, you know, uh, contrasts this gleaming, airy, immortal office and like this romantic neon violet Mumbai and um, had some really like cool, clear lettering and sound effects. So I was I was quite excited to read number two, and I don't I don't feel that very often. Um, Leon, I don't know how like how how were you feeling? Were you excited about this this next one? Yeah, yeah, like the way how uh, the first issue like left off it um, it set up this really cool world, and 
there's like a time skip um, element that is introduced that is kind mm-hmm. of like a sort of like punch to the stomach where you're just like, whoa, okay. And I, I was really uh, intrigued to see where um, they were going to go um, like following this because I was hoping that it would be... Because I think part of what I like as the running commentary for the first issue is um, like death uh, coming to terms with this stuff because they've only viewed um, like life and death as, as a death giver and um, a bit removed as a um, as a god. So I was in, interested to see where they would go now they are Layla and um, uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't disappoint. Yeah, feel very much the same way. And like it's in in issue number two, um, it kind of reveals more of the plot mechanics. Like you were saying, it, it leaves you with a punch to the gut with this time skip. And like it, this issue goes more into that than the kind of the structure of the story we can expect to see going forward. I think. Uh, so I'll read out the blurb that I found on the the publisher's website. So it's um, for issue number two. The Avatar of Death now exists in the mortal world as 20-something Layla Star, uh, after humanity begins the path to discovering immortality. Years pass, and Layla unexpectedly meets the boy who will change everything at one of the formative moments in his life. Layla must decide what she truly wants from him, and how far these revelations will push her. And I think, so, with the permission of that synopsis, I think we can begin to talk more about the spoilers that we were trying to avoid when we talked about issue one. And maybe have a spoiler bump for, for issue two. We can we can talk about that in a second. But, like, uh, the big reveal from issue one being that the character of Layla we see at the start, who uh, jumps from a building during a party, is the body that death then inhabits. And at the end of that comic, uh, issue one, during an escape sequence, she dies and awakes eight years later in the company of the god of life, uh, like Pran or Prana, uh, who we find out is the narrator of the story. And so, like, where issue one was really frantic uh, from the offset, and Leon, you explained this really well, like, with the it capturing the manic pace of uh, childbirth, like, right from page one, and then the bustling city of Mumbai and, like, death's sudden dismissal into mortality, issue two kind of slows down to give us more flavour about death, i.e. Layla Starr's situation, and the boy Darius, who will bring eternal life to the world, who destroyed Layla's purpose, who, you know, she then seeks out and then refuses to kill in issue one. And, like, the half of this story in issue two is Layla reflecting on her choice to not kill Darius as a baby and having a conversation with a a funeral crow uh, who is showing her around Mumbai and showing her the sights of Mumbai, her having woken up eight years later after her previous death in issue one and like discussing what that decision means and um, you know, mortals need for ceremony around death and those kind of things. And like, it's a thread I think I've seen plenty of times before, like a, a god reflecting on humanity's behavior from a new point of view now that they're, you know, descended down to mortality. And like, novelty isn't the only marker of quality. And like, what makes this version work for me is like the situation that the characters are placed in and how they react and the slow slippage from reality to fantasy and then like a sudden reawakening. So like, uh, how how do you feel about that specific thing, Leon? Because like it is something we've seen before, but you know, it, I I don't think this is. I think this is a really interesting take on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely um, uh, agree with that because um, 
I think oftentimes um, we can get too caught up on, say, things like uh, cliché or um, like archetype. And mm. I think what we often lose in that is um, that like cliché and archetype uh, can often be really good like packages um, for like uh, like story delivery. Um, and once you sort of remove the need, like by packaging it in a bit of a familiar way, you remove the need to like explain that particular stuff. I mean, if you step mm. out, if you step back one bit, that's kind of how genre works anyway. Where it's yeah. like, yeah, you have these conventions, and and what you what you do is it. it explore within the confines of those conventions and bend rules and break rules and mix of different genres blah 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 and I think that by um, like like having this setup where it's like uh, take a walk in mortal shoes um, it is giving us an opportunity to uh, really spend a lot of time uh, in the head and take a bit of a different type of look um of this stuff because it's less it's less pat than you could get in some of these things where it's like mm. t- reflecting on like the nature of life and blah blah and it, it's more um, a conversation between or like a dialogue between uh, like gods and the mortal and reflecting on how reflecting on how that uh already and like not to go into super detail yet but like or uh, already how just being uh like on earth in a mortal body like that vantage point um not like not only changes your outlook to a degree but also is like instant reflection on um the implications of your actions and um mm. how one could take time for granted before when one's got infinite time, but now that time is less infinite and, and is more a um, a precious resource. Uh, the the time skips end up becoming quite quite scary, uh, especially for for the character of Layla. Hmm, that's something I hadn't thought of actually. Like that, yeah. The implication of like how much time we're missing out on on her storyline. That's that's interesting. I, I think that's something we'll. Uh, see explored more in future issues i think um mm. but yeah to, to to the point you're making like i think from for me specifically maybe it's a very uh like selfish point in some ways but i just love that it's an indian take on this uh like as you say genre convention or you know uh, framework that we've seen before because like it's indian it's hindu it's something that i can connect with and i love that it's not a a fetishized version of india or like hindu rituals um, but it's also not a cold clinical take, you know, uh, to contrast like the uh, the fetishized version you normally see. Like it's romantic and authentic and not used as window dressing for like, quote unquote, an exotic take on this same thing that we would have seen, you know, gods discussing death in a Western setting. And like, I, I just love how warm and colorful and like um, authentically Indian it feels. Like I, I don't have a lot to add to that, but like, yeah. I don't know. Well, that's the thing. Like, th- that I, I was gonna like add to that point, but then I, um, I thought obviously there's like countless and ca- countless stories that I've not interacted with um, 
that uh, originate in India and have have dealt with this stuff. Hmm. So, uh, like, um, I didn't want to speak speak too much from ignorance, but um, it definitely, I think that's a that's an element as you as you bring up that does break it free of the um, the sort of story archetype thing because for me especially I I have like uh, a more limited um, viewpoint into uh, like uh, wider various like Hindu mythology I, I I've like I've, I've only interacted with that on a, on a smaller degree through things mm. that I've like watched and read. Um, so like, it really is cool to see those things, uh, used, deployed and, um, uh, like serving a purpose outside of what their normal purpose would be. If, if like, to, or, or to put it better, to put it in a, in a, in a better way. Um, this type of thing we've seen with like um, more Western religion loads of times, where it's like uh, guardian angels and just different like judo Christo things. We've 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 seen different takes on them and different takes on how the afterlife works, like a million times. So for for me, from like from my viewpoint, it it is there's a, an extra value there for it being um, focused on. Uh, elements of a culture that I have uh, less experience in, but then, like adding, like talking to your point, which I can only like talk to about to a de- degree, there feels like a, a level of like authenticity and um, uh, like love um, and mm. sort of um, what's the word? Not nostalgia, but like memory, as it like. Like you say, warm, warmth is actually the best best word that that you used for it. Um, where like there is a, a fondness that there's a, a a relationship between the people who are telling the, us this story and this sort of um, the the milieu that the, that this this stuff is coming from, uh, and it, it feels like authentic and uh, like like loved. But also for me, it's like fresh. Definitely, yeah, and it's it's nice to hear you say that because, like, honestly, from <laughs> I'm I'm British Indian, so I don't fully connect to this specific set. Like, I didn't grow up in India. I, didn't, I don't I don't have this um, this sense of place in my in my body. Like, it's a thing that I. It's almost like it's been passed down from my parents, or like these ideas of living in a house and in a bungalow outside of the in the village, which has like a mango grove behind it. Like that's a very romantic image to me, but it's um, and so like I'm coming at it from a similar, honestly, the same like side of the the pool as you, like maybe a few degrees more than the degrees you have, but honestly, not a lot more. And yeah, it is nice that it's it, you can you can feel the authenticity off off the page of it. Um, I also like that it's it's speaking to like social constructs that like I grew up hearing as the um, like the framework for conversations in in my family and like the things that they you know my family grew up with basically I'm referring to the fact that uh, when when the story the other half of the story talks about the the child Darius and his relationship with a farmer a servant on his uh, on his land as that he met and you know befriended as a child and like that idea of having somebody 
um, like an underclass, a laborer working for your family, and this you know innocent, loving child who um, like can see the uh, the what's the word I'm looking for the injustice in the way that the family treats this this farmer because you know he he does all the labor to collect all the fruit that Darius loves, but then isn't given any any of literally the fruits of his labor and like um when something happens later to him uh you know eventful in that 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 man's life like the family aren't really there to support him um and like that disconnect and that like social structure which isn't really something that gets talked about in uh, like western stories apart from like the stately manner sort of servant like upstairs downstairs kind of thing it's just nice i say nice it's interesting to see that put in put into this story as well um, and I'm keen to see how that develops because like I'm really quite taken with the character of Darius who's the the boy that Layla chose not to kill um, you know we learn that he's a really sensitive child and he's uh, you know his friendship with this character this farmer Burden is, is just really nice and um, I want to see I want to see where that character goes uh, yeah yeah and th- there's a really nice subjectivity there as well because um as we view that, it's kind of like the feeling you get of like childlike memories where they like exaggerate mm. reality a little bit where, um, like, um, the, the late, the laborer is like almost like mythic, mythical, almost like yeah. a, a Titan, uh, in, in like, if we're, like dealing with like a world of gods, like it's like a Titan where like this, uh, massive tall, like long arms mm. and like, um, like super dark skin, um there is like a um an almost like magical realism element to that yeah even the way he kind of almost speaks in poetry as well like yeah. uh, Darius is asking him questions and he's like everything that he ha- he responds with is xyz of course like that 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 kind of mythical person you have in your life as a child who influences you and like that will become like the story itself hints that uh, his relationship with this person and how it intersects with the larger story between Darius and Layla will become more important either if not directly like coming up later in the story at least affecting the tapestry of this kid's life you know and how it informs his like his sensibilities or his morals hmm. I've I've seen that page um hmm. with the yeah with the, like where he's he's talking to the kid um and I just this is like all the things, all the things that you guys are talking about are things that attracted me to the book in the first place. <laughs> and mm. like reasons why I wanted to read it after you guys talked about it the first time. And I'm just so bummed out that I didn't get to join in on this conversation because I've got <laughs> both of them in front of me, but I've not managed to read them. But that page that you're discussing there with the, uh, with the boy asking the questions, um, that is, I've seen that page and I really do love that page. And I love the, like I love it as a standalone page itself as a standalone piece that I've just seen sort of like floating around on Twitter and whatever, because I love the kind of um, myth story cadence that it has, because it's got that kind of like, if you were to read um, a translated myth or legend, or or if someone was to tell like by word of mouth, when people tell you these stories, like someone um, like, were to tell you these stories as a child, that's the kind of cadence, that's the way they tell it. Like, Mm. you know, this is, the child asks this and the guy responds, the child asks this and the guy responds. And it has that, that kind of like passed down 
word of mouth myth legend cadence about it which i really love um and you, you know you were saying uh leon about the judeo-christian um sort of like thing being overdone do you know what is really more overdone than that norse yeah yeah but yeah norse <laughs> is like super in season right now as well mm. yeah yeah <laughs> everywhere i was just gonna say like um I think one of the interesting points Rahul brought up is is how uh, like class slash caste is uh, presented in in, in this, mm. where um, like I I've always had like a pretty uh, like I don't know what the word is like decent understanding of 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 the uh, the caste system uh, in in India. Um, just from like my exposure to like different things and and people who who have uh, de- detailed it, but it's still quite um uh it it I mean it's always been a thing of like um like it's it's fairly uh, not uh, what's the word it it's it's a system that you understand and it's like yeah that makes sense. And that that comes from like me who has a background in a world where, um, uh, like uh, complexion and stuff has different privileges even within uh, like blackness, mm-hmm. and how that can be um, hard to understand for people who are who are not in that because it's like to a degree it's like oh everyone everyone's everyone's black and everyone's Indian type thing where it's like um, there is a, a nuance there in 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 the mobility of there. But I think that from, from what I understand of like how it works in the various different cultures um, in India is that um, it's almost like a more codified thing where like for, in my experience with like, um, like with like blackness, um, it, that is is more a not unsaid or unspoken, but it's just like it, it it's not there's not a thing of like like different social classes working blah 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 blah, and so like it is really interesting to see here like the big divide where it's like even the stuff like the way the parents um, refer to uh, this character and even the thing of like saying it'd be inappropriate to, to, to do a certain thing related to them. And it's, um, I think what's so effective here is how a little does a lot. And it may be because of what I'm bringing to it from my knowledge of that stuff and my, my own translated, uh, knowledge of that. But I do think the storytelling here is really effective. And as we're, we're in a, in a, as we're viewing things from, Darius's point of view I think it, it's really effective in how it it, it, um, it how it's delivered to you because it does remind me sort of being younger and wondering why like different injustices um, happened and why that's just accepted and why it's like mm. oh yeah that's that's how it is type thing and not understanding and like being like but why and um it it is I don't know if refreshing is the word, but I, I think it's um, I think like in a book that has like magical elements, I think it's super like concrete to have something like that because it does feel like 
even though it's like in present time for how we experience in this book, it does feel like a memory, like a flashback as we're reading these like these Darius uh, these Darius bits. Hmm. I mean, it's it sh- it should all be as simple as the uh, innocence of an eight year old child, right? And like before you start learning all the implicit and explicit rules, and I think yeah, this this story is expressing that really cleanly or like really uh, effectively like uh, w- one moment that i really liked um which is on a slightly tangent point is like i love when media does a like a poignant repeat of a moment and this th- this issue has a really good example of it where it's like it's not a whole scene flashback but like a snippet of the pulse that's important so like you we see when Darius is talking to Berlin that he says when he's saying goodbye and he like hands him some fruit which is you know um, a transgression of the class divide that his parents have set up and you know like the innocent of him is like handing handing his friend some fruit and um, Berlin is like don't forget me eh Darius and like this is an issue about uh, how the act of remembrance is important in the event of death and um like I just like that that's flashed back or flashed forwarded to later in the story. Like just this one little panel comes back and like that's the kind of moment in storytelling and stuff in comics that really makes my heart swell and it like it really hit me. It's, I don't know. I like I like noting any of these kind of things in a story because it just it works so well. Um, we haven't talked about the art this time, and I don't know if we need to repeat ourselves too much, but like both issues have done a really good thing of. Um, like slipping between like daytime nighttime reality fantasy and then having a sudden fresh reawakening and like all of this is due to i think the color is a huge part of this like i we mentioned in issue one how um it has this like fantastic use of hyper real colors and then Layla dies and then she awakens to this sudden freshness of a new day and this one is following the same structure and I kind of I'm hoping we get to see that repeated in maybe slightly different ways and like seeing how that form can be reused uh like because I just like that airy style that this uh this particular issue ends with um yeah yeah I I would agree with that because like I mean I would argue I was talking about the art when it came to like uh, (laughs) subjectivity but like um I think on top of that, like, um, I think you nailed it where, where it's like, it's like airy, but not dreamlike. Mm. Um, there is this, um, I think it's the thing where a lot of time when you deal with stories, um, there's a, a binary where you have the normal and then you have beyond the veil where it's all magical so like say you're harry potters and stuff like that and what i really like here is that the the binary it it, it exists but it doesn't exist and especially in, in the way this story is um progressing um the um like both of those worlds are like just melded into one and it's not like regular humans um have an understanding of all the gods and stuff, but they do believe like people who like the, the people who believe like believe and everyone else, um, whether it be tradition or superstition and stuff. So like there is an element where, um, like people are still are in conversation with like the, the, the gods type thing. 
but it's mm. like a more a faith-based thing where it's like a one-way conversation. But I think part of that does help pull like both of those worlds together where it doesn't feel like a, oh, we're on the other side looking at this. Um, there is a very real, and especially with uh, death being in, 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 in the body that, that they're in, it does blend these worlds in a really satisfying way where in, in yeah so instead of you having to have the like like the day and night feels very natural how it how it shifts but then everyone like geography wise is in the same spaces and different characters can interact and go from speaking to like a funeral crow to like interacting with like the actual kid and i, I love how um that is presented throughout and how um uh the color especially um works to like unify all of this but like but not giving us a uh what's the word like it's not like we're limited to like a color palette but instead what's happening is that we're getting uh getting lots of like rich uses of of color but it, it, they all are in concert with each other uh, mm. so that when you're at a sequence later on where there's a lot of uh, like fire and a lot of like warm colors it really contrasts with like the, the line work but also the dialogues that are happening and um yeah there's a lot of um uh i don't know like natural slash supernatural beauty in 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 these books and these issues so far and it's um it makes it a very compelling experience to go through them um and i think that's another thing which helps separate it from like uh, other works that like deal with a, a similar like find the your humanity and like humans ain't so bad after all type stories and it elevates it to something else yeah yeah and i think you um i think you nailed it when you talked about like it not having a binary uh like a shorthand or a like an indicator of when it's going from reality to to fantasy and like i was trying to trying to express that with the word slippage like there is a a slippage from one end of the scale to the other but it like if it was a tv show or if it was a film that there's a version of this where it could be like reality is in full screen and then the fantasy version is in like letterboxd or something and like i like that it's part of the it's part of the the character arc in this issue that we don't fully get to see when we've gone from one mode to the other and it's then further complicated because what's happening at a certain stage in this issue is we're seeing um, a ceremony take place we're seeing a funeral take place and like that adds to the like the uncanny romance or drama of the moment and like it really helps like bridge the the arc between reality fantasy and all that that slippage that i'm getting at um Mm. Yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now, so I feel like we can wrap yeah. it up, uh, unless you have anything to add, Leon? Uh, the last thing I'll just say is that uh, one of my favourite panels in the book is just the conversation between Layla and the crow, and they're discussing like the choice from like the last issue to to not kill the kid, and mm. and like reflecting on that, and there's just a thing of, like, it's different. It's and different. The crow, <laughs> it's different, and the way that's yeah. presented is so cool, and like I just love the speech bubble with the crow throughout. It's, it's like really like magical but sharp 
and it's like yeah like the the crow has a job to do and mm. and it's like it's not just your friendly like i'm going to teach you wisdom crow but the crow is just like let me let me break it down for you here <laughs> and but, uh, and it's never like condescending and and it's just like a really nice moment for me the fomo is real <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, why didn't I manage to... Uh, you were right to chastise me, Ray. You'll be there for number three, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I read I, look, I read a lot of comics, and sometimes, I, 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 I try as I might, I can't read them all. I just can't. Can't hug every comic. Um, so, we'll move on to the next one that I had to discuss, which is a collection I picked up, which is me indulging my sweet tooth for vintage comics, which is... Uh, a collection of um, a sort of golden age curio, if you will. Uh, the Strange World of Your Dreams. So, what this is, um, is it's like this golden age curio of from a time in the 1950s when... Uh, superheroes had dwindled in popularity and uh, comics publishers were trying new things. Um, you were getting like your romance comics and things like that and uh, your true crime comics. That sort of stuff was starting to like pick up pace. But then you also had like the comics code floating about and starting to come into practice, um, which is kind of like... Um, was kind of neutering all these things as well and um, sort of like really hobbling what what they could and couldn't get away with and making, th- making things a little difficult to tell these types of stories. Um, but so, yeah, this is, um, this is a collection of four comics because it only ever made it four issues. Um, it's a curious thing that was published between... Um, 1952 and 1953 and it comes from uh jack kirby joe simon and mort meskin um but you know there's like uh, contributions from bill drought and alida um and it's just it's um it's from a publishing uh publishing house called Crestwood Publications and it was um it was on the prize group imprint so prize comics um yeah it's it's really odd and it's really cool and it's something that caught my attention because I follow a lot of like pages and uh, accounts and things on social media that post a lot of Jack Kirby content and it came to my attention via that because it's just Jack Kirby worked on it and it's got a lot of Jack Kirby art in it. And me being the Kirby fan I am, I needed to check this out. So I found a hardcover edition which collects all four issues and has a lot of other interesting stuff as well. Like a really nice forward and some, you know, additional sort of like history lesson in there and everything else. It's a really, really cool. Uh, it's a really cool book. Um and this is um, Yo Comics and IDW, and um, it's collected and edited by Craig Yo. Um, so this is like his work, and he has written a little bit at the beginning about what makes this book so interesting and what makes it such a cool, curious, um, like, 
odd thing, really, because it's somewhere that sits between horror comics and something else. It's it's it occupies its own space entirely, but it what it deals with isn't unique. Because, like we discussed at the top of the episode, um, dreams are ever present and ever fertile subject in comics, and have been since the days of Windsor McKay. Um, like in the early 1900s, uh, Windsor McKay was, uh, we've talked about this on another episode, but Windsor McKay was doing his newspaper strip, uh, the little Nemo stuff, um, little Nemo in Slumberland, which was basically, um, uh, a, a child's dreams. And it was surreal as hell. And it was this really cool little newspaper strip that kind of had this like really surreal artwork and really surreal takes on things and everything else. Um, and for its time, it was you know, it's, it's pretty cool. And it's like this, this whole thing, this whole thing that has kind of like permeated comics from the very beginning to now, in fact, is like the fact that the way comics deal with dreams and the way people are more easily able to translate dreams to comics than any other medium. Um, there's something about comics as a medium that makes it entirely unique in its ability to capture dreams comprehensively in all their surreal and warped glory. Um, Craig Yeo puts it best in his introduction to the collected edition that I have. Uh, Comics, uh, I'm going to quote this directly, comics are more like dreams than any other medium. Films capture real humans, as real as Hollywood actors get anyway. At best, movies are daydreams. Comics have a strong surreal quality created by the black lines surrounding and defining the hand-drawn actors and their pop-dotted Technicolor dream environs. This step away from reality gives comics the other-world quality of our deepest nocturnal adventures. Animation comes very close second in being dreamlike. However, animation lacks the discernible blank spaces between each of the frames and panels of comics. Uh, These pauses work to replicate the staccato, fragmented style of dream narratives. Paintings paintings is a distant third art form, able to capture dreams. Uh, Time may melt with the remarkable art Dali and his compatriots produced, but it doesn't convey absorbing dreamlike narratives as well as comics do. So, sequential... I, I... tend to heavily agree with him on this, that sequential art is is very good at doing this. And some of the most interesting work in comics comes when creators dive deep into the surreal, when they completely step away from reality and uh, what is known what is known into the vast cosmic landscapes of imagination, dreams being unbridled thoughts and images inherently unearthly and strange by nature, lend themselves to the comics medium in a way nothing else can. Um, yeah, I... I'm glad I got that out because that's been like in my brain for <laughs> the whole week. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been trying to like, so yeah. Um, enter the strange world of your dreams, which is this golden age, uh, four issue book, um, which was an exercise in capturing the stark surrealness of dreams in the comics medium by comics visionaries and legends, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Uh, it was actually originally conceived by Mort Meskin, uh, who was working for Simon and Kirby at the time. Now, um, it's of no surprise uh, that this came from Meskin because Meskin had had experiences um, with poor mental health. He had spent time in a sanatorium. He'd read... um, He he was like a a keen reader of Sigmund Freud type stuff. Um, He 
has or he had also uh according to what i've read he'd also undergone reiki in therapy or reiki in therapy uh which is that whole stuff about orgone energy and special boxes where you're supposed to go so you can better attract said orgone power um have you guys ever heard of this stuff like no. the, the reiki in, of, the reiki in sex of, box <laughs> definitely not heard of that i've heard of reiki which is like about auras and stuff that might be the same thing well this I'm is not really sure this is spelled R-E-I-C-H-I-A-N. No, I've not heard of this. Yeah. It um, sounds, sounds interesting. Yeah, and it, it's like, I think it, it, I don't know an awful lot about it, but I think it has something to do with harnessing sexual energy and going into a, sitting in a special box that you can attract said sexual energy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all of that. And, um, it's this is like i think mort meskin as well um he had sort of like stints in and out of um poor mental health and not been uh occasionally like as it's put in in several play occasionally not being able to tell the difference between his art and reality as a comics artist so i'm not surprised that this is something that kind of came from a mind like that um so what I really love about the collection is the surreal work of Jack Kirby and just the overall premise of it. It's basically, um, they would explore stories involving dreams using like characters. Um, so like strange kind of like, uh, Twilight Zone types tales where people would be like where where it, like you know people would be fated to meet and it would save the life of somebody else and it was all foretold in a dream that kind of stuff anything from that to um interpreting dreams that were supposedly sent in by readers uh and and dramatizing dreams that were sent in by readers so yeah it's it, and the the overall premise of it and the fact that the the fact that dreams are at once comforting and unsettling and and here it is captured perfectly within these stories like the disquiet between the lines and the tension ramping up in the ending where it all screams and races to this abrupt end in dreams like dreams do um and you know as things in dreams go from benign to malignant all of that is captured perfectly in here and the way that they've written these dream narratives is absolutely perfect for that I mean, the front cover of the collection that I have bills it as Comics Meet Darley and Freud, and I don't think that's wrong, um, because it is it is really cool and really different. It was clearly aimed at an older audience, um, and I think, because uh, you can tell from some of the adverts in it and things like I think I sent you guys one of the adverts for, like, um, leopard print car seat covers or something um, when I was reading it the other day. Uh, but like, it's just, it's that kind of stuff, you know, the, the, like I love the, you know, the years old adverts you get in these comics where it's, it's like really, really, really weird things like x-ray glasses and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it has, um, like to equate it to something more recognizable, I'd say it has this like energy and quality of things in the vein of Twin Peaks only more fully realized or maybe an episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, and 
Yeah, like, I mean, it, it, Simon and Kirby were actually, at this point in time, Simon and Kirby had, you know, decided that they were going to try and make comics for adults. Um, so, like, they're in the 50s, they're like, let's make, let's make comics for people that grew up on comics. So let's make comics for adults that grew up reading comics as children kind of thing. So I think that's what they were, that's the market they were aiming at with this. And then like, obviously you get these romance, these romance uh, comics and everything else. And then they were doing the true crime stuff and all that kind of thing. And I loved diving into this collection and getting waist deep into the vintage weird tales. It's always great fun. And one of the best things about this book actually is that it's strewn with adverts offering to buy dreams from people. And if your dream is chosen for use and dramatization, you'd be sent $25 and $25 in 1952 uh, is equivalent in purchasing power. to about $251 today, uh, which is roughly 180 quid, (laughs) give or take. Considering the comic itself costs 10 cents, which is the equivalent of a dollar in today's money. And they were offering that. I don't, yeah. I don't know how many people actually, you know, what, what happened, how many people actually got to it, you know, that's the original things, but that's the original free to play model. They get yeah, you in. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, you're buying stuff constantly. So they had this character in the book, um, called Richard Temple. Who, you know, like in horror books, how you have an MC. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was almost like the MC style character in this, where he was like the, um, I think he was an approximation of um, what, like Kirby and Simon without putting Kirby and Simon in the book. And he was this supposed um, dream analyst, dream detective, they called him, called Richard Temple, who could tell you the meaning of your dreams. And, um, they had the feature in the book, send us your dreams. And they would actually tell you at the beginning, this dream was sent in by you kind of thing at the beginning of some of the stories where it was a dream that supposedly came from a reader. And it would be like Richard Temple would be narrating it. And then Richard Temple would analyze it at the end and tell you what the dream meant. Um, And that's like a thing that kind of like pops up throughout the book. Uh, This, this kind of like, um, MC style character Richard Temple and the even the, the, the when it when it advertises you to send your dreams and offers like when they're offering money I'll, I'll read the full advert out actually um if I can find one I'm just flicking through the book now um there we go yeah we will buy your dreams the world of your dreams is a strange and fantastic place where the unpredictable is the normal where the familiar becomes the grotesque where hate burns like the fire of Hades and love is an emotion that uh, sweeps through the entire soul. It's a bizarre and outlandish world, which we share with the night. Richard Temple student of dreams and fantasy is a man who has delved into the mystery of this vast subconscious jigsaw puzzle, which affects even our waking hours. He fits the pieces together. Why don't you join him on his many expeditions into unreality? Tell him about your dream. You'll receive $25. If your dream is chosen for dramatization, write to, and they encourage you to write to Richard Temple, this fictional character. So you had to write to Richard Temple, 1790 Broadway, New York, 19MY, and no manuscripts will be returned. So whatever you send them, you ain't getting back. But yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just the, the joy of seeing Kirby's art. And this is like his pre-Silver Age superhero days. And we're getting to see, like, we're getting to see him do this stuff, which is, like, closer to, like, vintage horror comics and that kind of thing. And this golden age, um, 
golden age narratives and everything else and golden age comic stylings. It's just, I love it. It's great. Um, and like, it's, it's a really curious set of four issues and it's like a curious experiment, I think. And something that I, I think for golden age comics is quite, um, quite cool actually and quite experimental um i mean he's not the first person to do it because it also tells you in this book that Windsor mckay did something similar where he had a strip called dreams of the rabbit fiend and he encouraged people to tell him about dreams they had had after eating welsh rabbit and then going to sleep <laughs> so <laughs> take from that what you will um and I think he intended to use those stories as well. I think that's how the the, the, the tale goes. But yeah, uh, yeah, the strange world of your dreams and comics is the strange world of your dreams. So there we go. Yeah, um, the version, I, the book I have, the Craig Yo collection, is actually really nicely presented as well, and it's a little bit tongue in cheek because the um, the cover has got like this spongy. It's like a spongy cover. It's like a mattress, mm. and it's even got like. Um, the artwork of I think it's issue three of the comic that they've used because it's like the best cover because it's the one with the eyeball plants and the woman running from the lion and stuff um but it's got like um this uh like the the sort of like it looks like a mattress with the comic on top of the mattress and there's a little label on it with uh edited and designed by Craigio do not remove this tag under penalty of law you know the tag you're not allowed to take off the mattress so yeah it's it's, it's it's got a sense of humour and I like it. But yeah, um, that is uh, The Strange World of Your Dreams. And uh, I would, if if you're into Golden Age books, if you're into your pre kind of like, um, but, you know, that kind of stuff, then then check it out because it's a, it's a pretty curious thing and I love it. So yeah, give it a, give it a look. Um, on from there, I think the final one we've got on the list today is Orphan and the Five Beasts. Mm, yeah because we're up to issue two of that now so this is more stoko madness uh the battle against thunder thighs <laughs> <laughs> i love this cat i love th- i love that name for that thunder thighs <laughs> i love the names of all the characters in this book actually um i think i think this is another book that has a great sense of humor so we talked about this before we talked about issue one we talked about how how madcap it is and how how intricate the artwork is um surprise surprise issue three is delayed oh okay yeah i mean we were talking about this last time weren't we like the speed of his output and things like issue three was supposed (laughs) to be on sale may 19th which is like uh, ncbd just gone but i think we're gonna have to wait now um i can't remember when because i looked it up and i can't remember when it was billed for now um but it's like another, it's like either this week, I think it is. I think it's coming out this Wednesday. Okay. Um, okay. It's not as bad as I thought then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a week, a week out, but we'll see. So, because okay. I remember um, Dead Orbit, like delays for Dead Orbit, like each issue getting delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. But when you look <laughs> at the, the artwork, you can see why. Like, so I think, I think it was, um, yeah, build for the 19th, but I think it might now be build for the 27th. So we'll see. It's like um, when everyone was stocking up on toilet paper. Like he's yeah. waiting for technical pens to get back in stock. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Conf- I mean, like I assume because I know the way most comics, um, comics artists work, and I assume he's finished this in in like well in advance anyway. 
mm-hmm. but I don't know. Anyway, it's intricate as hell. Um, it's gorgeous. We we know we talked about the art at length last time and about how everything is cross-hatched and everything is individual lines and it's all very very like you know like just looking at it gives you RSI. Like <laughs> the amount that they cra- he, the amount that Stoker crams into each page is just incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, Leon, you had read this, hadn't you, last time? I this, had, this yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. So, so you got to see all the madcap anime action. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was hard not to um, talk about it because I'd, I'd read them um, yeah. back to back. Um, so I'm happy we've, we've um, done this where we've uh, circled back and continued on with this because there's some great stuff in, in, these, in this issue. Yeah, I mean, I I just the what I tend to do with Stoko books is I go through it and just stare at it and just go wow, and then I put my tongue back in my mouth and then I actually read it. <laughs> but like, it's just like you can you go. Oh, where do I start with this? So this is where you can start to feel the Devil Man and the Fist of the North Star influence. Because it explains the origin of Thunder Thighs, and then you get the battle between Orphan Moe and Thunder Thighs. And it just gets, like, so extrapolated and ridiculous. Like, we are on the event horizon of the black hole of total ridiculous at a certain point in this fight when. Thunder Thighs gets cut in half, but is still alive. <laughs> you're you're really underselling that entire moment. Like so many of so many of my notes are in capital letters for this one. <laughs> um, I would say it. Th- this is my favorite thing about comics, where I I can just enjoy the art and not have to pay attention to the words. Because I read this once, just skimming through the art and like enjoying the artwork, and then it made me go back and reread what was actually happening. Cause like before I didn't really care about the plot that much, but now I'm really into it. And like, I love how video gamey the action is in this one. Like it has a moment where you have to get the charging yeah. enemy to knock down the four pillars and drop the bell. And then like, you know, the guy gets like cut into different, like he gets cut into ba- uh, bacon rashes and like yeah. uh, the bottom half of his body, like gushes blood everywhere, which kind of makes sense in this context. Cause his legs are all super powered and it's like metal gear revengeance. And then it like, we, we're talking about how there's shades of Sekiro and Bloodborne and yeah. stuff in this comic, and then that comes out again here. It's like the um, it's basically the Grape Eight fight in in Sekiro where you think he's dead, but he's not, and he comes back and he's even stronger than before. And like, it oh, does, it, it's it does great. Sam- it does the samurai thing where it cuts him in half, and then there's a, a pause, and then there's the <laughs> as the blood comes out of his bottom half, <laughs> and you expect it to be over after that, but then the health bar comes back up again. <laughs> And, and like, part of his spine is actually him still, somehow. Like, I'd love to know how that... I mean, I think it's supposed to be because he's, like, full of corruption and demonic force or whatever, but... Which yeah, is, like, the devil man some, influence, like, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be some worm or something, yeah. or, like, a centipede, like, in Sekiro, yeah. which keeps them going, yeah. But it's, like, inside him, and it, it comes to life, and then you've just got, basically, this, this little weird spine creature wearing huge trousers. <laughs> Uh, meat trousers, huge meat trousers, um, and yeah, that's a horrible it, sentence. <laughs> what are what is viscera looks like maggots, and it's cool. 
Um, and it's just like he stands on people and smushes them with his big feet. And then he accuses someone of hiding horses from him. And <laughs> what does that happen before this? No, that that's after. Is that that's pre this, isn't it? Because that's before he gets cut up when the the horses. He's like, no, no, it's not. It's after. It's after. Yeah. Does it matter? Does it <laughs> like matter? <it's> a... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's still going, and uh, and then you, you you beat the boss a second time, and then you get to take his. Uh, you get to take his crew off him because they start following you instead because you're stronger than <laughs> But like you, I'm saying it as if we're the main character playing through this. But um, it has that Ball Ake Zelda boss quality, doesn't it? You know, when like what you were talking about with the four pillars and dropping the bell, it's like the kind of thing like, you know, when you fight a boss in a Zelda game and you're like, oh my God, I've got to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this, to get one hit, to get one yeah. hit on him. And then I've got to do it all over again. Well, like it really works. It sells yeah. on the page, like how much effort he has to go to to like be creative in the fight. Yeah, it's very yeah, yeah it's very cool. Yeah, Orphan Mo really has to go through it, doesn't she, to like to get a to get a, a, a scratch on him. But yeah, it's a really cool issue, and um, I think we just wanted to check back into gush about this, didn't we? About its anime stylings and about its beautiful manga edges, and it's like it it does have that like nineties OVA quality about it. I can hear. I can hear the music, you know, like that, that <laughs> specific kind of soundtrack that um, Fist of the North Star has, where it's like the, the face off and it's like, like wailing guitars, but like slow, heavy metal music, like where they're like facing each other down before it all kicks off. It, it totally has that. Yeah, because like... I. I, I it's weird because, like, in the transition to this issue, it, it for me it still had the the OVA quality, but like what Rahul said did nail it. Because my first thought when reading it was Sekiro, um, like Mo even ha- has a kind of like uh, like wolf look, and mm. uh, so like I think like all coming together, it, it, it got that feeling of like when the the legs. Uh, started to uh, f- started to get up and fight. I did have that like that feel of the rush of like the great ape is back and you're like oh god like it's uh, mm. and I, I think it's pulling from a lot of these um, these touchstones really well like say video games anime that that that, that feeling that that kineticism and um, it's it's doing it um, in a really fun way. It isn't just like grim dark it, it, there's a lot of fun being had with, with, with this action yeah it's yeah, um I, I second that it does it does have a really 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 strong sense of humor um yeah it's like I, yeah. I wanted to touch on that because like it's got a sense of humor but not just in the action but just in the way that things are presented so like there's one of my favorite panels is when uh, uh the big dude's getting torn apart in half in the second stage of the fight and like you get to see like the the two parts of his legs being like ripped apart and all the the like the guts and the you know bits connecting all his tissue and everything being torn apart and there's like the little stub of a head that's grown out of the stump of the spine where uh, you know it got chopped off above the legs but like it does this weird 
like 70s heavy metal album thing where you get to see the tiny version of the head and then there's like a superimposed larger version of the head like in in higher detail and like zoomed in Mm. and like there's no need for it but like the dude had to fill in empty space and like stoker can't have empty space on his page so he just puts uh, like a higher detail like really gross ren and stimpy version of the same thing like in the corner of this not even the corner of the page like the corner of the the spread panel i just i love it yeah it made me wonder like does he have a second head growing out of the side of his leg and i had to take it like another closer look to see like no it's just superimposed for no reason like it's you know one of those um uh, i know like a a, a school photo you get where like you're sat down in one position then you get the head floating in the corner like it's got that sort of mood to it that's horrible who who's (laughs) i like side side like you know off to one side a little bit but who who whose idea was that originally like to to do the the floating head thing on photographs because it's just awful if the if the technique is there you can do double exposures do a double exposure like i know but it's just it's just like why do it why it's just so awkward looking and awful it's just no but i mean in in this comic when he does it, it it's a manga thing because you yeah, get, yeah, you, yeah, you see yeah. this in, in, in like manga comic books. Um, and you get to see like, I, I love the, the close up thing. And it's something that happens where you would get this in, uh, in, in an anime as well, where you would just get mm. this like still moment where it would be rendered in like, um, like, like a still piece of art rendered in like pencil or whatever. And it'd just be like, ah, oh, with just noise behind it basically mm. like the scream yeah but yeah it's perfect i love it it's very good <laughs> yeah um yeah uh leon you got anything to add to that uh now i'll just echo uh everything that you guys said i think that um it really nails what it's going for and i'll never not be amazed at just the mind-bending amount of like detail and lines in each in each um, panel, it always blows my mind. Yeah, and I mean, it, like um, my wrists start to like ache. It's like a psychosomatic <laughs> type thing. Yeah, seventeen pens died in the making of this book. <laughs> yeah, man, it is. It totally is. Like, and it has that real, real beautiful, like over detail quality. And there's only. Like I said last time, I don't know if there's many other... Uh, I I can't place many other artists that are doing this kind of thing right now in comics. Um, speaking of hyper-detailed art, it brings me on to a next thing that um, I meant to mention up top, but um, we lost a legend this week, didn't we? In the form of the uh, artist and writer of Berserk, Kentaro Miura. So R.I.P. Kentaro Miura, I just wanted to mention that because we are a comics cast and we feel it um, because we are, well, I am a Berserk fan and um, yeah, it's sad. Um, but like he, I, he was one of the all time greats. And if you look at his artwork, it's, it, this is, this is what Stoko brings to mind when I see the Stoko work. I, I think of, you know, Berserk and mm. some of the hyper detailed, fuller line stuff that Kentaro Miura uh, puts out or did, you did put out. Um, yeah, and it's a shame, and uh, we will feel that loss. Um, but yeah, his his legacy is incredible. Yeah, like it, it was it was really nice to see like the outpouring 
of like love from not just people who are fans but like other like contemporaries and the, the different stories that would come out about um like interactions and stuff and um yeah it's uh definitely uh like a big loss and like way too young it's uh yeah really young. very um very sad yeah definitely um but yeah uh rest in peace kentaro miura um and i think that draws us to a close doesn't it um, in case I haven't already said, and in case you didn't already guess, All of Orphan and the Five Beasts is by James Stokoe, the lot. Um, so that has been Ace Comicals 112. You can catch us in all the usual places, all the usual social media haunts. We are under Ace Comicals on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Twitter tends to be where we are most active, so say hi. If you've read any of the books we've talked about today and you want to you want to tell us about them then just you know get involved in the conversation just at us dm us whatever we're fine i i want to talk about comics so that's all i ever want to do so please please indulge me um you can find me on twitter under at bato and same goes uh ray where can we find you on twitter at monke so that's m-o-o-n-k-e-h and leon where can we find you, you can find me on twitter at leon everett yep and you can find everything we do at acecomicals.com um which is like the hub for everything uh you can listen to us on anywhere you can listen to podcasts pretty like literally anywhere um i think i think you can even get us on amazon music now so you might even be able to i've not tried it yet uh but you might be able to ask alexa to play ace comicals now yeah if you want to debase yourself listen to it <laughs> listen to us on amazon <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing <laughs> you know a lot of people are into big vampire women so <laughs> well, yeah, who am I to judge? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't yuck anyone else's yum, Rahul. Some people are into that sort of thing. Sure, fair enough. You yeah. make it seem, <laughs> you make it seem like it's uh, somewhere deviant thing, and, and not like half the internet who were first you know, for Lady. <laughs> I, I was making a joke. We were, yeah, we're, we're making a joke, man. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't yuck anyone's yum here at Ace Comicals, but yeah. um Yeah, so uh, that has been Ace Comicals 112. Ace Comicals, over and out.